This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Sarah Vogel. She's the author of a book, a new book called The Farmer's Lawyer, The North Dakota Nine and the Fight to Save the Family Farm. I do want to say before we start that it's a terrific story. And I think books about law and legal battles sometimes are very difficult to follow and they're difficult for laypersons or lay people to keep their bearings. And I, I want to compliment you because I think you did a really fine job of storytelling and making this a book about people as well as the law, but you know, bringing it all to life in a dramatic way. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, the North Dakota Nine were my lead plaintiffs and their stories needed to be told. They're heroes. Well, and in a lot of ways, though, I mean, you become, I think you're the, you know, you're as heroic as they are. I guess we should talk a little bit about the backdrop of the book without, you know, going into too much detail. So people will want to read this book. But, you know, it's a memoir of your life as in your story as a lawyer and as a North Dakotan. But it's really about this period in the 1980s when the uh, farmer's home loan administration was, especially under the Reagan administration, really abusing farmers, especially family farmers. Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened. I still want to talk a little, a lot about the backdrop of North Dakota and your political background, but let's talk a little bit first about just what happened in the 1980s. Well, it kind of starts in the 70s where Times were very, very good. Uh, land values were going up, up, up. Farmers were making money, and um, it was going along really well. And then in the early 80s, there were changes to tax law, and um, inflation was very high. And when Ronald Reagan got elected, he appointed a guy by the name of David Stockman, to run the Office of Management and Budget. And um, Stockman and Reagan, I think, did not believe in the role of the Farmers Home Administration, which was a lending agency set up in the 30s to help farmers, um, to help get them on their feet, to help beginning farmers, and uh, just just did a lot, a lot of good. And, they, you know, they were, they were going along you know, beautifully between the 30s and the time David Stockman got in. And there were delinquencies, but with with farmers, you know, they're, they're very dependent on prices and weather and so on. And, you know, given a little bit of extra time, usually it, it works out fine. And even though Farmers Home Administration was lending to farmers who were starting out or couldn't get credit elsewhere, they weren't losing money. They were just helping a lot of people and rolling along. And then there was a delinquency reduction memo that came out from Stockman saying, if there's delinquencies, you have to reduce them by 25% in a matter of months. And this happened right at the same time I'd moved back to North Dakota. Um, and I, I then a attorney on the East Coast. I had worked for 
the Federal Trade Commission. That's where I first encountered Farmers Home Administration because it was discriminating on the basis of credit. I'd worked at the Treasury Department and corporations. And so when I came back, um, I guess I had a pretty skeptical attitude toward the, uh, the Farmers Home Administration because of their discrimination. But I didn't expect to have happened what did, which was that all of a sudden hundreds and thousands of farmers were being pushed off the land by the Farmers Home Administration. And it was it was it was just pretty outrageous. And one farmer <clears throat> I worked with one farmer and he told other farmers about me and other farmers told others and pretty soon I had a specialty which was dealing with completely flat broke farmers who had not a penny to their name because their bank's account bank accounts had been emptied and they were not allowed access to, you know, their milk money or the cattle money or the crops. And it was, it was incredible. Uh, but, and they, it was all, I felt illegal and unconstitutional. So I resolved to try to help them. You know, one of the questions I had in, as you, you know, as you're talking about it, but also as I was reading the book, it, it felt like the, original purpose of the Farmers Home Administration, which went back to the 1930s with the Resettlement Administration uh, under FDR, you know, the entire New Deal, um, built yeah. to really help people. And especially in the 30s, uh, the plight of farmers, there were many, many, many more farmers in the 30s, I think 6 million, as opposed to by even 1980, about 4 million uh, what we would maybe call family-sized farmers, you know, full-time farmers. Yeah. Um, and and that it felt like, after, you know, in the course of the 30, maybe 40 years, that, that, that the administration of the um, loan program had gone on, that it built up a fairly hefty bureaucracy. And, you know, and without falling prey to this sort of anti-bureaucracy trope that's so commonly found, it does feel that they lost track of their central purpose in some areas, you know, maybe not so much close to the, in, in the counties and in the states, but certainly it felt like they, because they were no longer close to the original reason for their existence, that they were capable of being less humane and less adhering to the purpose, the yeah. original purpose that they had, even before Reagan and Stockman came in. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Um, there was a, a sort of a drift. And, you know, when times are good, you to, I think maybe some of the staff members forgot about how to behave when times were bad. Um, another thing that happened, I think, is that many people were hired to work at the Farmers Home Administration um, in the in the 30s and the 40s, and then there was waves of retirements. So the people who did have the knowledge and the the heart to to help farmers and understand how how the program should work were leaving, and they were replaced at the top by political people who did not believe in the mission and the purpose of the of the Farmers Home Administration. In fact, the head of the Farmers Home Administration under under Stockman, 
I mean, excuse me, under Ronald Reagan and John Locke, his father had been the national head of the National Farm Bureau. Yes. And he, his mission was to abolish the Farmers Home Administration. And so when the son became in charge of the Farmers Home Administration, he put his father's picture up on the wall. I know, that was so ironic. You know, I... I read that yeah. in the book, and it sounded so much like what we've been through, and under, especially under Trump, where they brought people in to yeah. dismantle uh, organiz, you know, dismantle agencies um, rather than than yeah. follow the law and do what they were supposed to do. And the irony of also, I yeah. think that guy's name was Schumann, that his father stated that it was God's will that people should not yeah. get help from the government. And boy, does that resonate, you know, this idea that somehow oh, we're living yeah. in a theocracy um, and that, every, you know, this is the sort of <laughs> Koch family mantra that, ev you know, that it's economic laissez-faire and that human beings are supposed to just do great or die. And there's no, you know, they just don't believe in any form of communalism, of mutualism. And that, gets yeah. me to this question. You know, what I really wanted to talk about is this history in North Dakota and also Minnesota, where my family is from. Um, you have the Nonpartisan League in North Dakota going back to the 20s and the uh, De Democrat DFL in Minnesota. Um, yeah. and, and you had populism in Wisconsin. So the three, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and North Dakota have this really long tradition of support from the grassroots for a kind of cooperative uh, working together against the larger economic forces that abuse and take advantage of farmers. That's a, you know, that's a long-standing yeah. tradition. What strikes me as so peculiar is how that's transformed in those states now from being essentially a, um, a progressive mindset and progressive way of thinking to almost its reverse now with a kind of um, a, a different kind of populism that's, you know, that you, they, you know, you might, you know, as you pointed out in, in the 1980 election in North Dakota, I think it was 150,000 to 80,000 Reagan vert to Carter. And it just, it made no yeah, sense to me. No given the history of the of those states and their backgrounds but they've transformed completely and i mean i obviously i'm telling you something you already know but i'm really interested to hear your perspective <laughs> on both the tradition of the nonpartisan league and how what you did was so much a part of that working on behalf of you know saving farmers and yet there's this kind of now transformed uh, vision of how things should be to where you know that that's almost gone. Yeah, well, I was I was lucky in the sense that I grew up in a in a family where the nonpartisan league was a religion. Uh, you know, it was my grandfather had been in the nonpartisan league. My father was a nonpartisan leaguer, and that entailed certain value judgments. It was farmers and workers and uh, not corporations. Um, like w one example is my, my father was a, a, a lawyer. Um, he'd been a judge, U.S. attorney, uh, very successful. And in his entire legal career, long legal career, 
he never once would represent a corporation. <laughs> so, so that's not done. And the nonpartisan league was responsible for, I think, passing a law that you you wrote about that um, forbade corporations from owning farms. I mean, that's such a yes. radical uh, position to take. It's yeah. just amazing to think that, that 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 could have happened. Yeah, and you're getting me very excited about it too because that law was defeated several times in the legislature. So the voters did it through an initiated measure. They got that law of direct adopted by sheer organization and just an initiated measure. It was amazing. And they gave corporations 10 years to divest themselves of the land that they had acquired. And um, it was appealed by a very sympathetic plaintiff, which was a hospital that owned farmland, up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was upheld as constitutional. Hmm. And all those corporations had to sell the land and um, back to family farmers. And um, and there have been exceptions adopted over the over the years. And I th- I think right now the enforcement of the law is a little on the lax side, uh, a little, <laughs> a lot. But it's it's there, and um, several quite a I, I think it's about ten other states have laws like North Dakota's. So that that's the kind of thing that was done. They also the Nonperson League also created a state-owned bank that has been remarkably successful and had its hundredth anniversary recently. And we also have a state-owned mill and elevator, which is the largest flour mill in North America and South America. And those are uh, owned by the people and they turn a profit and they pay higher than, like the the mill pays more than the average mill for wheat. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's absolutely great. And the irony right now is it's run by a bunch of Republicans who (laughs) love the bank, they love the mill, and they decry socialism. And <laughs> right, little did they know. But yeah. this is the part. This is the thing that, you know, it's it's we've had f- ever since the New Deal, the radical right has been trying to overturn it at every opportunity. Yeah, and it's taken yeah. them seventy five years, uh, but they've pretty successfully waged war on every value of progressivism that goes back to the 1920s and 30s, even before then, because, you know, in the prairies, there were um, organizations like the NPL, but also elsewhere, you know, like the Wobblies going back many, many years. And they were pretty strong traditions in um, a lot of the uh, Midwestern states of progressive values. And they've really successfully um, transformed that into... Um, a kind of minority view that has been discredited. Yeah, you know, I'll never give up fighting for those values, but it does seem that the dialogue has been sort of bushwhacked, you know, that... uh, Well, one other thing I want to add, too, is that the Nonperson League wasn't just for farmers. It was farmers and workers. Um, They, you know, it was labor, labor and farmers united. Uh, working together, that's the origin of the, you know, the 
Democratic Farmer Labor Party right. in Minnesota. Right. And so the, I think that one of one of the things that has happened is that that deep connection between farmers and workers um, was forgotten or was um, actively destroyed. Uh, but it's 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 a viable way of going forward, and I I really you know I I'm I'm still optimistic that someday the league will rise again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may need to. I mean, you know, there's a we're at a point where um, you know these ideas of cooperativism and mutuality, which is where you know the co-op movement came from. That worker-owned co-ops, consumer-owned co-ops, mm -hmm. producer-owned co-ops—they're all coming from this notion that you have to work together um, and have more power when you do, um, and you can do. And the values of are, are positive; they're not negative. I, you know, it's really hard to get that across when you're fighting against such a strong um, propagandistic machinery that we have, um, <laughs> you know, that yeah. has, you know, convinced people. And, and I, I think you're right. I think they, you know, the decline, it, it has a sort of circularity that the, the fewer people that work in um, farms and labor with their hands, the more uh, difficult it is for people to recognize the values that um, labor promotes and 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 and, mm -hmm. and, and I think I read a book and I and I talked to the author about it a few months ago or maybe a year ago called Rural Rebellion. It was about um, Nebraska, and he pointed out, how, you know, he kind of documented how Nebraska went from being relatively um, democratic and Republican to being almost exclusively mm -hmm. Republican over the last fifty years. And some of that yeah. has to do with the failure of the Democratic Party to embrace um, uh, rural people with values that are different from the uh, urban values. And that there's a lot, you know, this whole thing that people talk about of people being compartmentalized and unable to kind of reach each, see each other's side of things, I think has had that, you know, that's one of the elements of this but it's it's this whole you know kind of urbanization of america has really made it harder for um progressive values to continue to exist in in rural environments yes but i i, I think that it's it really important to um remember those rural areas and to um you know, to work with them and and talk to them. It's easy in North Dakota in a way because we're still quite rural. But um, you know, with, without the farms, then the small towns die. the The local small businesses die. And um, there's a lot of research that that shows that uh, general economic health is better when farms are. <laughs> Are, are better, more family-sized farms, not not these corporate behemoths that are factory farms, but um, that that's that style of of an economy is is really good for people, uh, which which I think the nonpartisan league and and other populist 
By the way, I'm really upset that the word populism has been bushwhacked. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, you know, populism always had this, it has always had a kind of a dual face, um, you know, that, that there's a, a, some parts of, some populism can be, can reflect really um, negative values as well as positive values. But I agree with you, the populism for what it was once the 1880s to 1920s populism has definitely been taken over uh, and turned. Yeah. It, it's more like a Huey Long populism now, um, and that's a real distortion, I think, playing to the yeah. worst, the yeah. worst elements of people rather than to their best elements. I thought it was great that you, you know, you quoted um, William Jennings Bryant, who is obviously, you know, one of the heroes, and. Um, I think it was also, yeah, it was the William Jennings Bryant speech from 1896 um, that the you said that the National Farmers Union published in their in a booklet that they did in 1982, and it's this the, what you just yeah. said: the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Uh, burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again. Destroy our farms, and the grass yeah. will grow in the streets of every city in the country. And I, I think that that's still true, and it's well, all, I, that's almost, you know, that's yeah. so, it, it's remarkable. I remember it was, I think it was in the 90s at one point. I, I went to Kansas. I'd never been to Kansas before. And I, you know, North Dakota had been through a bad time in the 80s and was coming out of it. But North Dakota never got as bad as Kansas. And I think it's because we had we had that uh, superstructure of the bank in North Dakota and the state mill and more support for farmers and anti-corporate farming law and so on. But yeah, I mean, driving through Kansas and seeing these rural towns with like just windows boarded up, entire main streets, not not just not just a building here and there it was shocking well no, and that's i think i actually wanted to talk to you about that because i've experienced that driving around america not just in the midwest but even in the northeast and some of the you know places like pennsylvania and upstate new york which were formerly farming areas and now you have the same thing you have boarded up towns and um, you know, virtually no community left because the farms are gone and the people who were farming have left. And it's all over America. It, it is really kind of hollowing out um, our country. And I really wonder, I, I, I don't understand how that can be changed back. You know, how do you change that back? <laughs> That's how do you reverse okay. that? You know, it's not just stopping it from happening, but really, if you want to rebuild communities, you have to get people willing to move back to the land. And one of the problems you have, and you kind of allude to this, is the high cost of land values or the farmland values are so high that it's almost impossible. And you read about this all the time from people who want to become farmers. They can't afford to buy land. And um, there isn't really a f any kind of support for that on a large enough scale to enable it to happen. Well, you know, that's where the public policy challenges come in. Um, that's where the, you know, the nonprofit organizations come in. To me, there's like loads of great ideas out there. Every year that I can, I go to the farm, farm aid, and they have a public policy 
day or a couple of days and um, they bring people in to talk about, you know, all these good things going on. Um, there are politicians out there who have got bills and proposals and, you know, people can start co-ops and, and um, there's a resurgence of urban agriculture. Native American agriculture is is growing apace. And so I think... I think there's lots of uh, positive things that are in the works um, and a great deal of work has to be done, like antitrust law enforcement, which I think is going to get a lot of attention in the Biden administration. Um, but, um, I, you know, I think people just have to keep keep working at it and keep keep trying and at the end of my book, I, I give organizations that are doing this kind of public policy work, uh, certainly the National Farmers Union, uh, Farm Aid, uh, on the legal side, the Farmers Legal Action Group. Uh, and, you know, there are groups for like in, in a couple of days, I'm going to go speak at the American um, uh, Intertribal Agriculture Council, which is like a nationwide consortia of agricultural tribes and you know they're doing great things so there are many you know spots of of uh good news and hopes and um appropriate um kinds of farming coming and then regenerative farming uh where farmers can do without the high cost of chemicals pesticides and so forth but um, government needs to be working with those people, not against them. And I think in the Trump administration, certainly the Reagan administration, government was on the wrong side, you know, not supporting the farmers. And it's an irony to me that so many people thought Ronald Reagan was a great president because for the countryside, he was not. No, that's for sure. No, and in fact, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned um, indigenous farmers. And, and also, I, I thought the same also of black farmers in the, yes. you know, the racism yeah. and also for women farmers that, you know, at least in the seventies and eighties, when, when you were, you know, when you were working on your case uh, or in the eighties, that there were so ma- there was so much um, misogyny toward women farmers and pretty sheer racism toward black and native American farmers um, that were yeah. as well. I mean, you know, also, uh, abuse of all farmers, but in particular, I think minority farmers of all kinds have had to struggle um, harder than you know than any other farmer to you know keep their land to have access to the to the kind of support and tools that they need. And I think there are a lot of efforts to um, uh, restore farming communities um, throughout you know black black America and. Uh, Native Americans. So I think that is positive. Yeah, very much. Very, very positive. For example, there's a big resurgence going on now uh, in, amongst Native American tribes, and they, they tend to be very cattle in, intensive. And and I haven't been there, but uh, and I've forgotten the name of the tribe, but Oklahoma tribe set up a meatpacking plant, and it's open to everybody. You know, so like all the all the small and medium sized farmers from the region can bring their cattle in and get a better price, 
and have a better future because the tribe, um, you know, pulled it together to get to get this packing plant going, and that that's that's very exciting, and and I think um, we're going to see be seeing more of that. And there's a lot more education, I think, to be done. And that is a, that is something that I think is really positive. That is um, introducing kids to the idea, uh, you know, even in places where there aren't farms, uh, as you know, as there are in North Dakota. You know, pretty. It's hard to be a kid in North Dakota and not know farmers. But in so much of the rest of America, it's really easy to grow up and never set foot on a farm or never know what a farmer does. And I think that kind of education is really another key element in bringing people, yeah. uh, you know, a, to, so that there can be support for the public um, uh, kind of infrastructure that you're talking about. Right. There's there's a lot going on. And I think, I think people who listen to your podcast, if they're, if they're curious, I mean, they're, you know, one of, one of, I think one of the best places to go would be the farm aid website because they have links to 700 organizations wow. <laughs> working across the country on this kind of thing, <laughs> 700. And so odds are there's probably a, you're in Connecticut, odds are there's going to be a little, there's going to be some folks in Connecticut working on these issues. Um, that you can link up with and help them. So, yeah, I see hope. Well, that we have to have hope. <laughs> and I think your book, <laughs> I, I will kind of circle back to your book because I think it is a really hopeful story, although it does rely on such heroic efforts on the part of so many people, you know, not just you and not just the farmers involved, but all the people that you got to volunteer to work with you and your father and all these, it's just an amazing cast of people who yeah. contributed to doing something that was so powerful and so important and could easily have been derailed at any time. So it kind of, it needed you to, to be the committed captain of the ship essentially. Uh, but you had to have a lot of other people to help you get there. Right. Uh, and, and they, they, they appeared, you know, and I think if I hadn't started, they wouldn't have appeared. And I, right. I sort of hope that some, you know, someday, maybe now, um, a young lawyer is going to have the opportunity to take a case to do what is right. You know, they know this is the right thing to do, and they perhaps don't have all the resources to do it. And instead of walking away from that as um, impossible, I don't have the resources to start and see maybe something will happen. Maybe people will come. Like, uh, like I, I, I thought that the ACLU was not going to be able to help, um, um, because they, they were saying, well, we'll look at your briefs and this and that. And then one day I got a call from the national litigation director saying, can I be co-counsel? I want to help. <laughs> you know, <was> yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, so that that you know that kind of thing, and then you know specialists in you know Alan Alan Canner, who was a specialist in class actions, you know he he stepped up, and then we had you know we had a good judge, and um, and even so, a lot of times it was my clients who kept me 
uh, going because I was inspired by them. You know, their commitment to the land and their desire to keep farming and their their sense of this isn't the way the government should be. This isn't the country we thought we lived in. You know, and their their strength, their courage, their heart, you know, carried me through some pretty dark times. Well, and you did have some dark times. That there's definitely a lot of that in your story. <laughs> I you know, it's pretty amazing that you had the stamina to continue doing this. So you get points for being relentless, um, <laughs> despite a lot of a lot of challenges. Well, I I really I loved this book. I really I you know it's and as I said earlier, I didn't expect to be completely engrossed in a legal thriller, um, a true life <laughs> legal thriller. Because you you but you kept me involved and you kept me interested. So um, I think it's a terrific book. Oh, thank you, thank you. I I tried to write it to be accessible. It is very to very people accessible. People who are not lawyers, right? And that's important. That's important because if you're if you're too much in the weeds, um, you know, you lose. You, we just don't know what to do. But I I think you don't have to be a lawyer or even have legal experience or have been in a courtroom. Um, hopefully not to have been in a courtroom, um, <laughs> something we all strive to avoid, but, um, it is, you know, it's, I really, yeah, I really like this book. So thank you oh, thank for writing you. it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Sarah Vogel about The Farmer's Lawyer, The North Dakota Nine, and the fight to save the family farm. And even though the story, this story ends, the, the story of saving the family farm has not ended. Thanks, Sarah. Mm-hmm.